Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Milton Friedman was one of the most influential economists of the 20th century, right alongside John Maynard Keynes. His work pushed economic thought toward free markets in the 1970s and 1980s. His passionate defense of capitalism and economic freedom had global appeal right through the present day. As such, the closing decades of the 20th century have been termed the age of freedmen. Yet commentators have sought to hold them responsible for both the rising prosperity and rising inequality of recent times. Jennifer Burns is a professor at Stanford University, where she teaches 20th century American history. Her research focuses on how capitalism and the power of the market have influenced the American political economy. Burns' new book is Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I was trying to think of who is the, the Milton Friedman of, of today, who is an economist, and a public intellectual, uh, you know, why that, you know, that maybe the average person would hurt, would have heard of. I was having trouble. I, I, I came up with Paul Krugman, maybe, but I'm not even sure that captures, I think, sort of the ubiquitous nature of Milton Friedman on sort of the American landscape, uh, particularly in the 1970s and then early 1980s. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's an equivalent. And I think some of that is about Milton Friedman and some of that's about our world and particularly our our media landscape is just actually it's very rich. It's full of variety, but it's also fragmented. So it's harder for one person, um, I think, to kind of capture that cultural moment. The other thing is, you know, Friedman worked in the trenches of a set of ideas about the relationship between government and markets and incubated for many decades and then suddenly caught fire as the set of answers or a possible set of answers to a, a really widespread crisis. So that's kind of the moment he became a symbol, a symbol of this broader political movement, um, you know, a symbol of this set of economic ideas. I think our own moment is a little too unsettled to have any one person kind of crystallize that sort of consensus the way that Friedman did. Uh uh, just, just, just one example. I remember in high school back in the uh, early '80s, uh, in an economics class, we actually watched his "Free to Choose" documentary. I mean, had, even at that age, I kind of had had heard of him. I, I just wonder how many how many economists that the typical high schooler today would have heard of, and whose videos you know that would have a video shown. To be honest, they might still be watching Free to Choose. Um, you know, that was a pretty comprehensive series and it has its kind of vintage charm at this point in time. Um, but again, right. So he did a, a series. John Kenneth Galbraith did a series, but it wasn't the era of everyone having a Netflix special. Um, you know, it was very, very unique to be exposed to that level of economic thinking on television um, from someone who had really done the research himself. So there was this moment in the 1970s where he sort of met that moment. So why was he in position during the during the great inflation of the 1970s, uh, where there was this huge debate about the size and role and impact um, of government? Why was he sort of in position 
to to be a a a, a very important public voice on a range of economic issues. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two pieces of that. One is that he was already known. He had his first kind of brush with fame during Barry Goldwater's campaign in 1964. And he proved himself a very um, compelling and interesting speaker, someone who the reporters just love to call him up and get a juicy quote, a pithy comment, something from him. So they, they already knew about him and they already knew he was someone who could stand up and give voice to ideas that were considered outrageous at the time, um, but actually make them sound very reasonable. And um, so, you know, Goldwater obviously remained in the Senate, remained an important political figure, but he kind of faded away as a media presence after the campaign where Friedman was really just getting started. So, so that's one part of it. The other part is that, you know, he makes this remarkable speech in 1967, where he says this, this idea we have that we can very easily trade off inflation and unemployment it's not going to work over the long run. And hey, in fact, we're heading towards a period of high inflation, and it's also going to come with high unemployment. And this wasn't really thought to be technically possible. So it ignited a big debate among economists. And then as this debate got started, the very things Friedman had said would happen started to happen. So he was in this incredible, enviable position of having seen like, you know, the prophet who cried about the danger, and then here it has arrived. So the combination of him having a profile, him being very telegenic and media savvy, and having really called it, called this crisis that was now unfolding, and people were looking for answers. So Freeman became the kind of representative of, okay, if 30 years of economic policy have kind of terminated in stagflation, what do we do next? How do we get out of it? Where do we go from here? And he had a lot of ideas about that. It's an intellectual biography. Would the first intellectual splash have been would have would have been his work on the Great Depression? I would say so. Within the economics profession, there's another book that is you know still the ideas in it have still been incorporated into economics. This was called the Theory of the Consumption Function, uh, which sounds very technical and boring. And but what it basically said was um, it provided a theory and an analysis showing that people um, make economic decisions based on what they think their lifetime earnings will be. And so the reason that this became really topical was, well, one, it had a lot of new information about how to think about consumption decisions. And secondly, it really spoke to this question of the Keynesian multiplier and the, the Keynesian analysis, which had predicted a fairly stable rate of consumption. And Friedman was able to challenge this based on his data and say, I don't think it's quite so simple. So, so it was a, a technical piece of work. Then it opened up to this broader question about how the Keynesian synthesis hangs together. So I would say within the economics profession, that got everyone's attention because that was a very central issue. And at that time, the late fifties, money was considered very peripheral. So they sort of thought Friedman was kind of following this idiosyncratic, ideologically loaded um, topic of interest to him that was money in his research. And before the big money book came out, this other book came out. But since it was so clearly aimed at consumption, which was so fundamental to the profession, that really changed a lot of people's minds. And you see the beginning of a grudging respect for Friedman, like, OK, we have to wrestle with this book. We have to acknowledge the work he's done. Before we get to his work at the Great Depression, maybe take a moment to describe sort of the intellectual climate in which Milton Friedman sort of emerged, uh, you know, by the 1960s and eventually the 1970s. I mean, people talk about sort of, you know, there's a, you know, one way of viewing things. And we have the sort of this elites in this country. They all view things in the same way. But in the world of economics, there was a very strong 
view of how economies operated that Milton Friedman saw things differently. Yeah. And so that really comes out of World War II. There's a series of legislation passed that basically uh, creates a Council of Economic Advisors, um, creates, gives the president responsibility for the economy, says there has to be an annual report on the economy to Congress. This is a whole architecture of policy that doesn't exist before 1946. And so what basically happens is the modern economics profession grows up alongside this set of legislation that gives them a very important role in guiding government intervention and management of the economy. And most economists think this is the way things should be. This is right and good and true. Um, And a lot of them are saying, because when we weren't there before, what happened is we fell into the Great Depression. Now, Friedman has an entirely different perspective on the Great Depression, which is much more focused on the banking system, the financial system, and the Federal Reserve. And so he doesn't think all this management is necessary He also doesn't think it's possible. So the 1950s, I would say there's a consensus in um, uh, the economics profession, but it's also a fairly prosperous decade. Uh, It's in the 1960s when you see a little bit of concern about recession, that you have the emergence of the idea of fine tuning. And this is uh, very much associated with the economists who work for John Kennedy's administration. And they really believe that um, you can kind of, You can fine tune the economy. You can sense a little bit of weakness in this sector and provide extra finance there. Um, You can see a little inflation breaking out and try to slow things down and that you can understand what you need to do and that you can fairly predictably make interventions and know how they're going to work. And Friedman just doesn't believe that at all. He's almost it's almost a philosophical difference about how much human beings can know. And he just says, that's not going to work. And probably it's going to set things off kilter. Like your intervention is going to maybe work more than you thought or less than you thought. And then you're going to do another one and another one. And the next thing you know, um, you've really gone off the rails. So he's the one who's saying, I don't think all this is necessary. And when the economists are patting themselves on the back and saying, look, our stimulus really uh, has resulted in such a strong economy. He's saying, actually, I'm looking at the money supply. And I think the Fed did that, you know, and they're like, what? You know, no, this is us. And so he's, by the 1960s, he's he's really, I mean, hate might not be too strong a word. He's very much disliked. Eventually, uh, uh, there's that more grudging respect for him, as I said, starting with the technical work and then really coming in the era of inflation. So what was the view of what caused the Great Depression pre-Milton Friedman? I think a lot of kids in high school will read in their textbooks that, or maybe the average person will think like, oh, it was the stock market crash or something like that. And I think a lot of people today would still blame that. Did people still think that even by the 1960s? Friedman said, I guess, basically that there was a problem with the Fed and the banks, and we let all the banks fail, and that was bad. So was he confirming what people already knew, or was that something new? No. That idea was out there, and and Friedman draws on the work of a number of people, and of course it his, his great partner in this work is Anna Schwartz, who does most of the research. Um, but I would say that one of the more influential interpretations that arises during the Great Depression and then kind of solidifies after is this idea of secular stagnation, that mature economies get to a point where the sources of growth they once enjoyed, be it settling the frontier or new technological development, those kind of peter out. And when you're in a mature economy, um, you're not going to produce enough good jobs for people to buy the goods that they make. Um, things are just going to get sluggish and slow down. And that's where the federal government steps in. And so 
the Great Depression is seen as the sort of first major episode um, that really marks a shift into a new economic era where the federal government is necessary to support broad prosperity. So that kind of catches on. Um, and then it just taken as a given based on the experience of the Great Depression and also the experience of World War II and the wartime spending being what you know ultimately ends the depression. That seems like a very clear object lesson that when there's depressions, government needs to spend. And in general, government needs to spend to prevent future depressions. When I think of Milton Friedman, I sort of think of there's two versions. One, I think of sort of a uh, the economist uh, who uh, you know uh, co-wrote an important book about the Federal Reserve and the Great Depression, who had very interesting and prescient things to say about inflation and monetary policy. But then I think there's the other guy. The guy who, like, if you go on YouTube, you see him on the Phil Donahue show, like debating debating people. And I, I so, when does that switch? <laughs> does he kind of switch from being sort of the, you know, the the uh, the economist saying, you know, saying interesting things about the economy that you know with that with that sort of an acad a real academic core, to being kind of a an evangelist in a way for 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 free markets. Yeah, I mean. On the one hand, what I show in the book is that his ideas about government, markets, the states, individual freedom, individual liberty, those cohere very early. Those cohere for him in the mid-1930s when he's in graduate school. And um, they're a little hard to see through the crisis of World War II and after, but they're very much there. So at the same time, he wants, as he says, politics to be his avocation and um, you know, economics is his vocation. So he's actually offered a chance to be on President Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors in the mid-1950s. And he basically says, no, I have to run my University of Chicago workshop. That's more important. You know, so he just thinks I need to establish myself as an economist before I do anything else. Now, by the time of Goldwater, he's completed the money book. He's completed much of his major work. He's more interested in being that spokesperson. And the other thing I have to stress is throughout his life, he worried about what he called the radical right crackpot conservatives. He worried about um, the direction of conservatism, and he always wanted to create a certain type of conservatism they thought was evidence-based, ideas-driven. And over time, he came to see himself and his fame as a kind of mechanism for making that happen. So... Um, you know, so he's involved kind of behind the scenes in these kind of intramural skirmishes, but it's with Goldwater. And then when we head into the 1970s, he's getting close to retirement, mandatory retirement. Um, he's got, you know, this great body of work. He's got legions of students. And yes, he starts to enjoy this other aspect of his life, um, you know, being that spokesperson. What I really want listeners to know and readers of my book, I think, will get is that you often encounter the sort of late stage Friedman and there's a whole other career and the ideas have much more depth than could ever be expressed in Phil Donahue or in a short interview. And so sometimes what we're getting a Friedman is kind of the tail end. That's maybe not as satisfying as, as I would say the economists in full. How does someone with his background, you know, coming up through the great depression end up being an advocate for markets rather than, rather than an advocate for you know tamping down markets constraining markets is that is, that, is that, was it was there things that happened in his life or that's just sort of his personality or who knows i think you know part of it is the intellectual orientation and the explanation of the great depression is not a failure of markets 
um, per se, and not even necessarily a failure of regulation, but a failure of an economic institution that was designed to do something. The Fed was designed to end economic crises, and it presided over the worst one we've ever had. So, so we had an alternative explanation. So he definitely wasn't he wasn't ignoring crises. He wasn't ignoring the downside of capitalism, but he had a different interpretation of why it happened and how it could be fixed. You know, the other piece that's important, I mean, it's it's counterintuitive because so he was a child of Jewish immigrants and he ended up deciding, which was definitely a minority position for American Jews, that state regulation was often a way of closing off markets to people who were discriminated against. So he thought, for instance, um, the American Medical Association was a form of a cartel, which so it, it regulated doctors. And he had some good evidence for that because the American Medical Association in the late 1930s decided you had to speak English to practice as a doctor. And he thought that was pretty clearly discrimination against doctor, you know, emigre refugee doctors. So we had this way of really thinking about who is the state harming with this regulation rather than who is it helping? And I think that was just an unusual perspective to take. Calling him the last conservative, it's almost like we need to define what that word means, the, the, the word conservative. What I think it means in this case is someone who wants to conserve the great liberal tradition of personal and economic and political freedom. I call that like American conservative. He's not a European conservative and he's and now conservative. There's yes. nationalist conservatives, populist conservatives, but he was a classical liberal conservative. Yes. Thank, and thank you for making that distinction. So I don't have to belabor, belabor the point, but I do mean it pragmatically in some ways that there was a conservative movement in the 20th century that synthesized a great deal of things that unlike European conservatism incorporated the emphasis on free markets, on capitalism, um, on using market allocation before, uh, you know, state allocation. And that is what makes American conservatism distinctive. And that was really what Friedman brought into the synthesis and, and put together. And so, yes, I think that's very unique um, and distinctive and important. It's an important part of his legacy. And today, I think that's really being fought over, you know, I, so it's a bit of a provocation. Of course, I can't say um, this is, you know, where things are going to turn out, but I think, he he's emblematic of a type of which we seem to be producing fewer and seems to have less maybe sway than it did once. There's there's one other way I think of him as a conservative, which is the all these approaches to economics, you know, studying the Fed were underlaid by an approach to deeply empirical work in economics and going back to older ideas, such as the quantity theory of money, that his peers just said, that's an old idea. It doesn't matter anymore. And he said, well, I'm not sure about that. So in, in, a, in a really very real sense, he conserved older ideas by going back to them, seeing what was still left, um, and really showed that these research methodologies and approaches had a lot of juice left in them. And without him, they would have been completely left behind. There wouldn't have been you know, an active academic tenured professor economist using these approaches. So in that way, he, kind of his intellectual framework, you know, has, it can be considered conservative in a way as well. As a historian, I'm sure you've, you, you've seen uh, ideas come and go and then uh, get revived in a somewhat different form. Um, do you think that the notion that the kind of liberalism that Milton Friedman espoused and defended and evangelized, that that's 
that that's going to stay right so the, that there'll be that there would that you would expect to see at some point a a revival maybe it's not a complete revival maybe that doesn't become the dominant way of thinking on the right but there's a certain secular cyclical nature to this isn't there yeah and i think that part of part of the puzzle is well what are your alternatives and where do your alternatives lead you and so i think as time goes on we see uh, more illiberal movements on both the left and the right. And I think a lot of people react against that, like, wait a second, this isn't what we wanted. Where does this play out? So I think that that in some ways makes a case for classical liberalism just inherently because we don't have a lot of better alternatives. I think, but I don't think it's a straightforward return because Friedman's ideas really developed in the Cold War era. And you had a completely different global system. You had half the economy of the world locked away in a totalitarian system. You had top-down economic planning um, was the great you know, opposition force to free markets. That's been pretty much completely discredited. Um, we have different totalitarians rising, but we have a much more integrated globe. And the question of how the government interfaces with kind of global economic development, I think is just a different one than Friedman faced. So I think you have to hold on to a lot of the insights and principles he had, but you have to recognize they're playing out in a very different world. I guess my last question is, if someone really did only know him from free to choose, you know, him debating on uh, on TV, on TV shows, it sure, you know, his fans love calling him Uncle Milty. If they only know that version, the, the big takeaway that you would like from an intellectual biography would be what? That that is the like I said, that's the late stage Friedman, but that um, his ideas uh, were developed early. They developed in the context of the Great Depression. And the real thing I think gets overlooked is he had from his earliest days a real concern with how can we have uh, free markets, market allocation as relatively free price system? And how can we also attend to the people who aren't going to make it in market competition? So. I trace, you know, one of his favorite ideas was something akin to a universal basic income or a tax rebate. And I trace this from the 1930s through his career. This was really his preoccupation of how do we address poverty? How do we address inequality? The second half of his life, he shifted his focus to education and he became convinced that the only way you could mitigate inequality, which he saw as potentially really being exacerbated by globalization in this country, the only way you could fix that was by providing people with better education, with better skills. And he felt like the public school system was a government monopoly and was doing a very poor job in educating. So he put all his weight behind school privatization. You just mentioned two ideas, universal basic income and sort of school choice. Boy, uh, people may not be uh, having lots of debates about the well, intellectual world they do, but about, uh, you know, about the Great Depression. But Boy, those are two ideas which are as timely as today's headlines, and to me suggest that Milton Friedman will be pretty darn relevant going forward. I think so, absolutely. And I would say these these share this common concern of how do we create um, a, a capitalist society and system that works for everyone, recognizing if it doesn't work for everyone, we might lose it altogether. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 